Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. Many of you know that I started this podcast as a way to share academic conference presentations, and I expanded this work in spring of 2020 in order to bring you the audio versions of the pandemic pedagogy conversations I've been hosting on my YouTube channel, Imagining a New We. For this upcoming school year, I'm going to be bringing you a second series that I'm hosting on YouTube called Source Saturday, where I talk with historians and creators and archivists about primary and secondary sources that they have familiarity with and to talk about what they read from them. Although the series does work better as a video because we screen share the sources we discuss it, there are many interesting elements of our conversation that do, that do work as a podcast, but I do urge you to check out the YouTube video so you can see the source for yourself. Like the Pandemic Pedagogy series, these podcast episodes are unedited conversations, so you may hear buffering or the repetition of a question or an answer if Zoom wasn't working that great, but the content remains fundamentally the same as the video. Enjoy this version of Source Saturday. Hi everyone, Dr. Samantha Cotrera here and Betty for the Imagining a New We video blog, a video series designed to help history teachers and other history educators teach history in ways that are more meaningful, transformative, and inclusive for their students. We're continuing Source Saturday today, um, and I'm really happy about your response to this series. Um, it's been really cool, and it's also really cool because I imagine it more as a video series because we're doing a screen share, but the podcast numbers have been really, really high, <laughs> uh, higher than the video numbers, which has been really great. I'm glad that you're enjoying these conversations. I am enjoying having them, and I am hoping to be able to continue the series in the winter, but we will we'll see. Um, so we're continuing Source Saturday today, and there's a reason why this series is not called Primary Source Saturday. Um, I had written on Twitter, I don't know, a few months ago in the late summer, Something like, you know, the notion of primary source is kind of binding us to a particular type of source. And like when I say us and I say we, this is not a shade, this is not like a shade towards something, you know, it's not like a subtweet or anything. I, I'm putting myself in this category. That oftentimes when we talk about primary sources, we, we teach them in a binary to secondary sources. Uh, so interpretive sources. And the thing is, like anything can be a primary source if your research question asks for it. So a textbook, for example, which is kind of like a classic a secondary source, can be a primary source if your research question is, what do textbooks from the 1990s, for example, say about World War II? And then to answer that question, to do that research, you would need to look at textbooks from the 1990s. So a primary source is only a primary source when, um, when we need to use it in that way. And the notion of a primary source is like this piece of evidence from the past. I, I don't want to say this is not important. It is. It's an essential, important part of historians' work. But there's a notion when we talk about this, again, I put myself in this category, that the past is over, that evidence is over, it's done. 
And that's not always the case. And that's not always the case for a lot of histories that have traditionally been marginalized by the discipline of history. Like even just the notion of objectivity and the notion of like a source without bias, that is presuming that you would ever come to a source without bias. It, that's impossible, right? That's impossible. You always have bias. What I say to my students is, we just don't want the bias to get in the way of of, interpret, of interpreting something, right? But there's always bias. So what I'm saying is that I didn't call it primary source because I do kind of want to have a bigger version of the pieces of evidence that we use to explore the past and its relationship to the present. And so the video today I'm really excited about because it kind of demonstrates how, it, it demonstrates that this binary between primary and secondary sources don't always work because today we're actually going to be looking at a rap song. And as soon as I say song there, I feel very old and like not with it, which also just made me sound old and not with it. <laughs> We're going to be looking at a piece of music today by um, by a rap artist. I mean, he's still he's still rapping, but a, a rap artist that uh, came out with a couple albums in the late '80s and the early '90s. And we're going to be looking at this source as both a piece of history to understand elements of the 1990s, but also how a piece of music, how a rap, can also be used to create interpretations that are important, that are kind of central to people's understanding of themselves, historical understanding of themselves in the present. So this, so today, like by looking at a piece of music, we're kind of looking at both a primary source and a secondary source, but also how it gets blurred with certain types of perspectives, like certain types of stories that would have been kind of annexed from like, uh, traditional, objective, unbiased, archived, historical accounts, a source like a rap, a rap song, um, would be, would not really like have a good place in a traditional archive. So it's just to kind of suggest that we can look at a wider variety of things, but also to get our students to ask questions about the types of interpretation that they think best align with their own histories and, and the way that they want to process history. I hope all that makes sense. Let me know if you want me to reflect a little bit more about this notion of objectivity and the kind of like, the ways that our traditional understandings of the discipline of history kind of get in the way of broader experiences, especially related to indigenous um, people, uh, related to black people, related to people of color generally in history, related to women, related to um, LGBTQ uh, people, like related to the stories that often get left to the margins. Let me know if you want me to talk more about that in another video. But anyway, we're, we have such a really cool video today because I'm talking to a historian of hip hop, which is just amazing to be able to bring this history to this series. So today we're talking with Dr. Francesca Diamicho Cuthbert. She is a historian. She's a historian of hip hop. She's working on a postdoc right now on hip hop in Toronto, which is really cool. And she also has like the coolest title um, right now, which is, and I'm reading it, the 2020-2021 Community Engaged Early Career Fellow at the Jackman Humanities Institute at the University of Toronto. Like, how awesome is that? She also sits on the education committee for the upcoming um, Universe of Hip Hop Museum, which is supposed to open in the Bronx in 2024. And she's just like an all around like 
cool person, obviously, but like this scholar of hip hop. When we talked before this video, like the things that she is bringing to these conversations because of how she connects uh, hip hop history with histories of Canada is just really amazing. And I can't wait to be able to talk to her for this series. She's also a York grad. She still teaches a couple courses at York. And so I brought my York mug today to represent because, um, uh, you know, it's kind of nice to meet fellow York graduates here in Toronto. So let's go over to Zoom. Let's talk about this this piece of music. We're going to look at the lyrics. Um, I didn't know about like copyright in terms of music, so we're not going to play the music or play the video, but I'll put the link below because it's very easy to find. So let's go over to Zoom. Francesca, thank you so much for finding time to talk with me today. I was saying in my introduction how excited I am for this primary source because it both demonstrates a primary source and a secondary source, but also like a primary source of a secondary source. Like I'm just, I just love that we're able to cross a couple different genres here. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I really do appreciate it. Do you want to uh, introduce yourself before we get started? Sure. My name is Francesca D'Amico Cuthbert. I currently am a postdoctoral fellow at the Jackman Humanities Institute at the University of Toronto. Uh, my research focuses on the history of hip-hop culture, in particular the history of rap music in both the United States and in Canada. And I'm also currently a member of the Educational Committee at the, Univers uh, sorry, at the Universal Museum of Hip-Hop, which is set to open in 2024 and is really uh, one of the first places to commemorate the totality of hip-hop culture across the globe. That's really exciting about the opening of that museum. Um, there's a cat here. Um, do, is there any, like, um, are there any, like, uh, are they worried about a, a longer push, like, opening date because of COVID? Or are there going to be, like, online things that they might not have thought of because of COVID? Like, we didn't really talk about that, but I just thought it occurred to me with a date. <laughs> Yes, so it was an it was initially scheduled to open in 2023, which would have been oh. the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of hip hop culture. But because of COVID, of course, there are a number of issues that meant that the opening had to be pushed back. But the wonderful thing about this museum is that there are both attributes of the museum that will be physical, that will be in a physical space. But leading up to the opening of the museum, there's also going to be online components one of which will be curating the entire timeline of hip hop history so people can, in the span of those years, certainly visit the website. I would encourage them to do that uh, at the moment as well, uh, where they can kind of look into other aspects of the museum that are not necessarily material or physical in nature. Yeah, that's really cool. So if you are planning a trip to see the museum, you can count on kind of 2024 um, because it's already been pushed back. But it's great to know that there's going to be stuff leading up to it. Like, I think that's such um, a great element of so many new museums now that that's built in. It's not an afterthought. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we get started talking about this source that you... Um, provided us. Um, I'm really excited about it because it's from an album from 1991, if I'm correct. Um, and 90s history in a lot of Canadian history classrooms often doesn't get a lot of time or space, but it's also just kind of very 
one dimensional. Like I don't think there is as much kind of effort being put into diversifying narratives of the eighties and nineties uh, as there are um, like in world war two, for example. So first question, what is this source that you have provided us today? Sure. So this is a sound recording by uh, MC or, you know, the term that people are more familiar with uh, is rapper, but MC Maestro Fresh West, who is a Toronto-based MC uh, and is considered one of the architects of Canadian hip-hop. Uh, and so this particular song was featured on his sophomore album titled The Black Tie Affair. And it was once Maestro had really come to fame already through his earlier material in the late 1980s. And the song itself uh, features a vocalist by the name of George Banton. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, the song is, was released in the early 1990s, but to a degree it commemorates uh, or certainly discusses issues across the 1980s and early 1990s. And like, I would, I would maybe like to extend that to young people listening to the music as well. Because like, if you don't know hip hop culture, if you don't listen to rap music, you might interpret your students listening to music in class, for example, as like just having fun, right? Like just listening for the enjoyment of it and not that this is like a particular form of education that they are getting from some of these lyrics, right? Like, and um, yeah, like I'd like to, I just like to extend your analysis to thinking about students in our classroom, especially students who are black um, and who participate in hip hop and rap culture, because if you don't know it, then you might, you might kind of put that dichotomy up. Um, anyway, sure. yeah. I think, I think one of the things that's wonderful about hip hop culture, and we'll, I think we'll get into this a little bit more when we actually talk about the lyrics of the song, because Maestro does reference this, but there is, you know, we think about hip hop, we're thinking about there, there are pillars of the culture, meaning there's things that, you know, are the essence of hip hop, one of which is emceeing, but another which is knowledge of self. And, mm. and so at the center of hip hop is always a conversation about uh, thinking about history, but not necessarily the history that we're accustomed to, the master narratives that show up in our textbooks that one of the things that we can rely on hip hop for is creating a counter narrative, thinking about the, the story of, of history that is, is, you know, that most of us know of and thinking and questioning whether that is all of what actually occurred. And so we can rely on hip hop for that reason. And so this perception that hip hop is in a, a center of knowledge production, I think is, really unfair to the artists themselves because when we think about the history of hip hop, particularly at, in the late 20th century, these are young people that were thinking about their social worlds in relation to important historical transformations, one of which was the ramping up of mass incarceration and the practices that were so common to the cultural, uh, carceral state. And so they were often thinking about what it meant to be the generation that followed the civil rights and black power era, you know, what it meant to respond to their social, political, and economic context. These were young people who were constantly thinking about their social worlds, while, of course, doing other things like partying, as an example, right? But that too, we need to think about expressing joy, 
uh, expressing a, a sense of fun, of which was, was common, you know, in the earlier generations of hip hop as much as it is to this day, that is also to some extent uh, an expression of politics as well. So I think to say that hip hop as a culture is just uh, an entertainment culture, an expression of, of the culture industry, doesn't necessarily give it its due credit for being a source of knowledge production and to think of MCs as knowledge producers, as intellectuals, public intellectuals in particular. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for setting that up, setting that context up in talking about these lyrics, because the idea about this as a, a counter story or a counter narrative is something I talk a lot about in this series, because, you know, you can just say, oh, let's look at this. Let's look at these lyrics when we're talking about 1991. It's another thing to say, let's let these lyrics shape what we are focusing on this term like let's let it change and counter what we're doing and not just bringing it into the fold of a master narrative and like when you say master narrative in this context especially when like right now I have I'm still viewed as an S-L-A-V-E like that notion of master narrative really hits in a different way when you tie it for example to the history of slavery so let's I go think, back. Oh, sorry. Can, yeah, sure. If I yeah. can interject, I think one of the one of the great things about using hip hop in the classroom also is one of the things that we tend to forget about hip hop history is that the authors of hip hop culture were young people. They were, you know, kids who were in and around the same age as teenagers in high school. And so to think of these young people as those who generate knowledge is really important to bring that element into the classroom because it helps students understand that education is a dialogue, it is a conversation, that it is not just something that is kind of uh, drawn down from the teacher, but that students can actually bring their knowledge into the classroom as well. And oftentimes it's a conversation that can, to some degrees, complement the knowledge that exists in the classroom, but also challenge, question, and critique it. And so I think it also is a way for us to empower young people to remind them that they are powerful, they can come into the classroom and give something in that space as well. Uh, and so that's something that I always try to kind of bring forth and reinforce in my own classes, that hip hop is an example of young people taking a hold of their power in educational spaces as well as outside of them. Because oftentimes being in an educational space doesn't have room, purposefully doesn't have room for that type of power. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. So let's talk about these lyrics. I'm just kind of going down them, but let's let's kind of do a deep dive. So sure. as a historian of hip hop, what do you read from this source? And I mean, I guess part of it is like, what do you hear from this source? But we'll just do with reading since we're just looking sure, at lyrics sure. now. <laughs> sure. What do you read from this source, both in terms of like, the, like what he's actually saying, but also like the things that you analytically um, pull from it? Sure. So I think I, if I am to think about the 1980s and the 1990s in the Canadian context, there are a couple of things that I think we can pull from this text that we can speak of in greater detail as we go through the lyrics, but some of which is to think about the way that this text reorients us away from some of the master narratives of the 1980s. Uh, so we might think about the 1980s as a decade of constitutional reform, for example, of thinking about the relationship 
relationships of the so-called two founding nations of Canada, the British and the French. And to some degree, this particular text reorients us away from that narrative to think about conflict in, in the nation as involving more than the founding nations of the British and the French. So that's one of the first things I think the text does. The second thing is that it helps us problematize the master narratives of Canada as being a place that's supposedly welcoming, a place that's supposedly peacefully settled, as well as a place that's supposedly lacking in the circulation of white supremacist ideology and race-based thinking and hierarchies. I think the third thing that it does is, especially for thinking about prevalent narratives of the state at this time, uh, one of which included thinking about Canada as a place that was anti-apartheid, a place that was uh, anti-US involvement in Latin America. These particular narratives tend to reinforce Canada as a place that was both anti-imperialist uh, and anti-racist. And what this recording does is by recentering narratives of Black Canada and the way that Black people in Canada have been treated across the historical period, what it actually does is help us question whether that anti-racist and anti-imperialist narrative of Canada is actually true. Because the domestic story that we know of Canada tends to tell us something different. Uh, I think the second to last thing that this text does is that it certainly puts forward the presentation of the possibilities of Black and Indigenous solidarities, particularly through the questioning around what, we, what was at the time referred to as the Oka crisis in the early 1990s. And the last thing I think that this text does, and, and this is a really important uh, element, I think, of the way that we create narratives of history, the myth-making of Canada, is I think Maestro importantly helps us think about who is granted uh, the privilege to be memorialized as a Canadian hero. And I think, you know, specifically about people in the 1980s like Terry Fox. So what is it about Terry Fox's story that allows us to memorialize him as a hero and perhaps other figures in Canadian history have not quite had that same memorialization. And so I think these are some of the key elements that this song helps us draw out as, as an example of counter-narrative. Yeah, I think that's really, I think that's really interesting. And I'm highlighting here about um, Edgerton Mar Marcus, because that isn't someone that I am familiar with. Like, I don't really know a lot about sports history. That's not like my thing. <laughs> but I mean, I don't need to actually know him to like know that this is a narrative that happened, because I can think of uh, Olympic stars, for example, in the 80s and 90s that I know of, even um, though I don't necessarily like know them. Um, and I, I'm so, it's so interesting about the ways that this particular, like these lyrics go back and forth in time to like highlight the like continued erasure. Um, did you want to pull out any particular lyrics. I highlighted some in that first verse. Do you want to talk about any particular lyrics in particular? Sure. I guess we could start with, in the first verse, uh, the, the lyrics, some of which here you've, you've highlighted, uh, the first is, as we scan this land, we live in, is plagued with racism, C-A-N-A-D-A, Canada, I'm watching it decay every day. Young minds are being mentally crushed and mushed in thanks to men like Rushton. So I think this, this 
these particular lyrics here are really important because on the one hand, they help uh, challenge the prevalent master narrative of Canada uh, that has been cultivated and sustained to some degree through historical moments and symbols such as the Underground Railroad and the North Star myth. So when we think, for example, about the North Star myth, we're thinking about a period uh, prior to the American Civil War. So we're looking roughly at the 1840s through to the 1860s. And this is a time when we're told in, in Canadian history textbooks, particularly young people in classrooms, that African Americans follow the North Star uh, in the sky using, or I should say on the Underground Railroad, which we know were a series of hidden locations on a route leading to Canada, where allies helped transport African Americans, uh, the enslaved, to Canada with the ultimate goal, a personal goal, of finding freedom, equality, and full participation in society. So this is the story that we're told. Mm -hmm. We know, however, that this was not always or necessarily the things that uh, African Americans in Canada found. And so as a result, the story tends to frame African Canadian history as one that is free of racial violence and oppression. But by the time Maestro is creating these particular lyrics, this North Star myth continued to structure the perception of race relations in Canada as radically different than, the, than those that African Americans experienced in the US context. And so here in th these lyrics, we start to see the beginnings of Maestro questioning that master narrative of Canada as one that is supposedly without anti-Blackness. And so once we get to these lyrics about Rushton, this is a really important intervention. Now, for those of you who may not know, John Philippe Rushton was a Canadian psychologist who taught for a very short period of time at York University and the University of Toronto until, uh, and then later in 1985, was made full professor at the University of Western Ontario. And so in the 1980s and the 1990s, he became known to the public for his controversial research on the intersection between race, intelligence, and crime. Uh, and he was heavily criticized at the time by the scientific community who argued that his application of the RK selection to human, to human beings, they claimed was conducted under a racist agenda. And so, Rushton was in part the proponent of ideas that racial differences in things like IQ, law abidingness, and even sexual restraint were partially related to genetic inheritance. And so here, Maestro is using Rushton as an example to suggest that race-based thinking does exist in Canadian society, in this case in the Canadian Academy, as well as throughout the, the late 20th century as well. And so here's an example that counters the master narrative of Canada as one that is without anti-Blackness. Well, uh, another thing about Russian, for people who are interested that um, in this, like this past summer, summer 2020, um, there were actually quite a few articles about his legacy um, at the university and about students, mainly Black students, although they're like adults now, they're I mean, that was, that was a bad distinction, but like they, they graduated, um, you know, like a decade ago and like their experience in those classrooms. So if anyone is interested in that, you know, another thing about that North Star narrative is that, um, is that like we didn't have slavery, right? Because the North Star narrative often is like, and then black people were able to come here and be free. Um, but 
without without recognizing that um, people of African descent had been here far before that time, um, and they often um, in early days were came as enslaved people, right? So, like, I like how you're bringing up that myth and how it's kind of woven in here. Um, can I ask you a quick question? Do you think clan here should be a K? Do you think yes, that, I think so. Yeah. So in this particular uh, set of lyrics, where he says, because the clan also move in the great white north, we got to hurdle the system because hate penetrates multiculturalism. Here, it's, it's clear that Maestro is referring to the Ku Klux Klan, mm -hmm. who most people think, you know, is an organization that is associated exclusively with the United States. Though if we look at the early history of Canada, particularly in the 1920s and the 1930s, the Ku Klux Klan actually had expanded their operations uh, across the border into Canada. So we know, for example, that the KKK first appeared in Canada in 1921 in places like Montreal and West Vancouver. We know that the first registered provincial chapter was actually in Toronto in 1925, where Maestro obviously is, is based. And we also know that in Saskatchewan, where the Klan was perhaps most successful, they were actually able to defeat Liberal Premier uh, Jimmy Gardner in 1929, in part because of the backlash that he received for a number of his anti-Klan sentiments and statements. And so one of the things that is interesting about the Klan's history in Canada is that along with observing the same ideology that we see in the U.S., which of course uh, was intended to attack communities such as African Americans, Catholic, Jewish, and migrant communities, the Canadian Klan tended to distinguish itself uh, based on the fact that they imagined themselves as having the so-called duty of preserving both Britishness and Protestantism in mm. the Canadian context. So they were already framing what they imagined to be true Canadian identity. And so this is, you know, and even one of the ways that they did that in terms of the visuals is, you know, the, there is, of course, when we think about the Klan, we always think about that the uniform that they wear, you know, the, this, this white cloak. Uh, but in the case of the Canadian clan, one of the things that they used to distinguish themselves from the American, their American counterparts is that right next to, or I should say, opposite of the cross insignia that is characteristic of the clan, they actually also placed a, a maple leaf, a red maple leaf, so as to say we are the Canadian version of the clan. And so hmm. they were very cognizant of having a particular agenda. I want to say that also, you know, this, this term here, Great White North, which you know most scholars uh, in particular of Black Canada are very familiar with. I think that particular term, which I find so interesting that it actually shows up in a hip hop record because prior to seeing it in hip hop, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a graduate student, I had always been familiar with it as an academic term. Uh, and so it's so interesting that it shows up in a Canadian rap song. But when scholars think about that term, they often theorize it in two particular ways. And so the first thing that we, we think about when we're critiquing the Great White North is that it's a way in which people who frame discourses about and master narratives about Canada, it's a way to assert the dominance of whiteness as a cultural norm in, in Canada. And the second thing is that this narrative of the Great White North builds a sense of Canadian identity that is closely linked 
with notions of a supposedly untouched wilderness that is open for occupation. And so in a lot of ways, this narrative assumes a fantasy that Canada was peacefully settled rather than violently colonized through conquest and dispossession of land. And so this particular myth-making is not just a term. We often see it in the images associated with Canada. So we might think about the images uh, that circulated on our currency, on some of our older currency, as well the images that circulate through the work of the Group of Seven, for example, which tend to frame Canada is not simply an open landscape, but one that is snow covered. And so we see a reinforcement of whiteness through the snow, but also forests and lakes, all of which are, uh, you know, all of which I should say, uh, racialized populations, namely indigenous and black communities rarely appear in the settler landscape. So we just see landscape, we don't necessarily see people. And so thanks to the work of a number of scholars, indigenous uh, and, and black Canada scholars, we have learned that this master narrative tends to advance the trope that Canada is not just literally and figuratively imagined as a white nation, but that it's also imagined as a place that's much more welcoming and peaceful than the United States, particularly when we're thinking about issues of race. And so then Maestro takes us to think about the present day, about multiculturalism in relation to these historical images. And so these particular narratives, the Great White North, uh, the North Star myth, they make it possible for Canadians in the 1980s and the 1990s to really embrace the modern day fiction that is presented by the policy of multiculturalism, which isn't just a political policy, but it also translates into a social and cultural one as well. And so this policy of multiculturalism, which you know was adopted you know, in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, is often framed as an indication that Canada is supposedly a place of acceptance and tolerance of difference and diversity. And when we look at the stories of Black Canada, especially the ones here, you know, Maestro's indicating because hate penetrates multiculturalism, what his story is telling us is that these narratives of multiculturalism, these fictions, tend to obscure the ways in which prejudice is also built into and penetrates the framework of multiculturalism. Yeah, so there's a few, thank you so much for that. There's, there's a few things I want to pull out that I think are just so important in this conversation because, because I also know just how like common they can be in classrooms, being in classrooms myself. Like I know how kind of easy it is to slip into an us versus them with the United States and being able to say like, we're better. And uh, there is a book that I can't remember the author right now. I want to say Sullivan, uh, who writes about the good white and how like good white people differentiate themselves from the bad white people are to say like bad white people are uneducated. They don't know. They talk about racism in these ways. We don't. We know it's bad. And so we're good white people. But what that that does, the idea of a good white is that you don't ever look at yourself and what you're doing and how you entrap yourself in in whiteness in white supremacy and i think that we often do that with the united states like 
Canada. Like we say, oh, we're the good whites. <laughs> we're the good whites. It's the Americans that have the problem. It's the Americans that have the Klan. It's the Americans that had the civil rights movement, this violent civil rights movement. It's Americans that had slavery and that we really need to pay attention to how we use those discourses because we get in the way from understanding the ways that racism uh, frames Canada. And one thing I've talked, I talk a lot about in my book, but I've talked a lot about in other videos is while we can really celebrate Canada's diversity right now in whatever ways that looks like, it's really important to remember that Canada was never intended to be this diverse. In fact, <laughs> Canada was created to be white. Like that was such a central lawmaking, policymaking um, uh, bent for so long that we that those things are still embedded in our laws. And so we can celebrate diversity, but what we have to do is also remember how racism is entrenched in how Canada was created. And so when you say things like the Klan put a maple leaf uh, symbol in the rest of their symbols that we often associate with the American Klan, that these are particular discourses that were used to be like, no, we're creating a new country, we're creating a particular country, our country is white and that this is really important. And the notion of the great white North, like I think of this book, it's an academic collection on, um, on geography and whiteness and that it's important for us to think about the imagery of so many things. Like you said, the group of seven, because so many history teachers will say, and again, I, I, I can put myself, uh, this isn't blaming, like I, I know that this is something that often happens. So many teachers can say, uh, Canadian students, like students don't know Canadian history when they come into the classroom. But I've always said that they have an intuitive sense of who and what are important. And often it's not them because they can see on the money, they know the particular icon uh, iconography. And I think that we can do a better job in our history classrooms of like breaking down those those symbolic ideas of Canada, because as much as we can talk about Canada in 2020, this notion of the Great White North really still frames what I think we associate with Canada, like this just vast, empty land. <laughs> and what that does is really just annex us from colonialism, from anti-racism, and from the white supremacy that was built into our built into our, um, I want to say constitution, but it's not just the constitution. It's like our policies and practices. Um, thank I you for pulling. Too. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Well, I think too, one of the things that as teachers, we need to be critical of, particularly in terms of pedagogy and how we circulate curricula mm -hmm. is that when we think about the master narrative of Canada, those who are working on kind of uh, salvaging the history of Black Canada are also dealing with this, as you mentioned earlier, they're dealing with this practice and it's ongoing, it's constant, this practice of erasure, which we need to think mm. about that in the context of, you know, creating curriculum material as an example of anti-Blackness. So this practice that continues to happen in the building of Canadian curriculum where the stories of Black Canada are constantly erased. 
this is an anti-black practice in teaching education and and curriculum building and in pedagogy right so why is it that scholars of black canada are always having to salvage these stories and remind us that there were black people in this particular part of the country there mm -hmm. were these stories you know there were these historical moments you know that that is an example of how anti-blackness plays out in, in the arena of education. And it's something that as educators, we need to constantly be aware of and vigilant about because this is one of the issues that we're having to tackle that's unique, I think, in the Canadian context. Yeah, I think it's important to remember the, the um, purposes the silences play in our classrooms. Because we, we can't teach any, everything, but when we, say these stories aren't part of Canadian history, like these ones aren't important to center. What are we really doing? Because um, it is easy to say that the curriculum doesn't have time, but then it's also, sometimes it's uncomfortable. So like where, kind of where do we place our own anti-racist commitments, for example? Although that, 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 uh, that phrase kind of seems a little bit more uh, shallow, the more people say it. Like, where do we place our particular commitments? Like, when I talk about historic space and that we really need stories to, to counter and challenge our traditional narratives, I say, like, what purpose does this story play in the narrative? But what do we learn if this story was absent? So like to think about what what do absences do? Like to think actively about that, I think is really important. Thank you for bringing that to this conversation, um, which okay. seems like a really good segue to our last question, which is how, I mean, although I feel like we've answered this the whole time, but what does this source, how does this source challenge how we can think about this time period um, and also challenge how we can think about knowledge production. Sure. I think it challenges, it challenges the master narrative in a couple of ways. I think on the one hand, it, it thinks about this large question of coloniality and not just merely colonialism, which we tend to structure as an event rather mm. than when we're thinking about the lives of black and indigenous people we tend to, uh, you know, and, and I don't think this is necessarily true of academics. I mean, we're constantly thinking about coloniality and the fact that these, uh, these historical practices remain in the contemporary in a lot of ways. And so, for example, when, when Maestro draws our attention to uh, what was then in, in the 1990s called the Oka Crisis, he's helping us think particularly about the role that coloniality plays in the lives of black and indigenous people in in the late 20th century he's helping us think about questions of land dispossession uh, the role of the state and how they treat uh, indigenous communities the, he's helping us also think about the role of you know the militarization of policing the way that police kind of engage with indigenous people at that time he's helping us think about Canada as another example of a carceral state and so in that way, he's helping us challenge. I think oftentimes when we're thinking about the carceral state, uh, we tend to only think about the U.S. as an example of that, rather than if we think about indigenous relations with the state, particularly this example of the Oka resistance, 
right? This is a story that helps us to draw that story to, to, to the top. But also thinking about how this story of coloniality uh, you know, allows, uh, in, in this case, uh, you know, an, an African-Canadian MC to think about the possibilities of solidarity, uh, to look at the Indigenous story and think critically about, well, then what, how then is, is Canada going to respond to Black communities? Almost anticipating the possibilities, but also think, he's clearly also thinking about the past as well. I think that, you know, when we move forward into some of the other lyrics, one of the values that Maestro's song brings is that he also helps us think about how important it is to have a critical consciousness around the production of images and discourses uh, and representations of blackness. And so, you know, in the second verse in particular, he talks about getting a movie role, you know, where he was represented as someone who was a prisoner, who was uh, an incarcerated person. And he, he helps us think about the, the historical practices of representing people of African descent constantly as criminalized, right? And how this, this has been a historical practice. So if we look at, you know, the creation of the culture industries in the U.S., particularly after emancipation, the images of Black people start to transform. They move from representing Black communities as happy, docile, and childish to new images which represent Black people as rebellious, as vicious, as criminal, as aggressive, as violent. And so here, Maestro is drawing our attention to the continuum, right? The constant representation of Black people as criminalized. And he, and of course, you know, as mentioned earlier, the constant representation of Black people as enslaved people. And so what this then does is it creates representations of Black communities as constantly dehumanized. And what that then uh, allows for is to create a society where we don't see Black people, Black communities as human beings, as, as human beings worthy of, of respect, as human beings who are, are worthy of uh, policies that treat them with compassion and care, right? And so when we then translate that into thinking beyond culture, when we think about social policies, political policies, economic policies, I think what Maestro's helping us think about is the power of the media to transform and shape our thinking about particular communities who are constantly othered, and the way then that translates into how we treat them in, in social, um, historical, uh, but also in the contemporary context as well. And then of course, you know, as we mentioned earlier, some of the ways in which he does this is to think about the discourses that are created around certain figures in Canadian history. So he brings up you know, the figure of Egerton Marcus, he brings up the figure of Ben Johnson, both of whom are Canadian athletes. So, you know, the first figure, Egerton Marcus, uh, he thinks about him in comparison, uh, he thinks about him in comparison to Sean O'Sullivan, both of whom were Olymp Olympic athletes, uh, both of whom were um, athletes who won in, in the sport of boxing. Uh, and so Egerton Marcus, a Guyanese boxer, a Guyanese, sorry, Canadian boxer who won a silver medal in the middleweight division in, 
in um, the Olympics, Summer Olympics, I should say, in 1988, is juxtaposed against this figure of uh, Sean O'Sullivan, who was a white Canadian boxer who won a silver medal, the exact same medal, uh, but in the light middleweight division four years earlier at the same, at the Summer Olympics. And so he puts these two figures in, in comparison and says, and asks the question, why is it that one is treated in, in a particular way and the other is not, right? And so he helps us think about the ways in which the Canadian media uh, creates stories, memorializes certain athletes over others. And he, I think, insinuates, right, that th this is an issue of race. Uh, he later talks about Ben Johnson, and he compares Ben Johnson to uh, a figure, a, an, an American figure, uh, Jimmy Swaggart. Uh, and so for those of you who are perhaps not familiar with the story of Ben Johnson, uh, he was a Jamaican-Canadian sprinter, who here Maestro acknowledges as one of the fastest runners in the world at the time, uh, who won two, bron two bronze medals in the 1984 Summer Olympics, uh, he was later stripped of his gold medals in the 100 meters at the 1987 World Championships and 1988 Summer Olympics after being disqualified for taking performance-enhancing drugs. Now, one of the things that we often don't talk about with the story of Ben Johnson is the way that the nation took up his story at the time. And so when he won these accolades, uh, he was a celebrated Canadian hero. There were constant stories about him in the media. Uh, ones that often framed him in a positive light. Immediately thereafter, the scandal, Canadians, and as Canadians, of course, were witnessing the downfall of Ben Johnson, Canadian newspapers devoted, you know, anywhere between five to eight pages about the athlete um, in, their, in their sources each day. And one of the important shifts that I think we really need to be cognizant of is the way that Ben Johnson went from being described as a Canadian athlete, a Canadian hero, to immediately being described as um, a migrant from Jamaica, mm. right? And these are, these are important distinctions. The reason being is, you know, to think about the way that Canada immediately attempted to distance themselves by suggesting that he was an immigrant, but also, when we think about discourses in Canadian media, the reference to a Jamaican ethnocultural um, identity has often been used to frame people in a negative way, uh, in part because Jamaican identities tend to be uh, closely linked in media discourse to criminality. And so to see this uh, Canadian athlete, the discourse around him shift from one of being an embraced athlete to one that was disgraced and then distanced from Canada is, is, a, is an example of the way uh, that anti-Blackness functions in Canada. And so the maestro juxtaposes the figure of Ben Johnson against the figure of Jimmy Lee Swaggart, who some of you uh, may know of. He was a very famous American Pentecostal evangelist who in the 1980s, in that very same decade, uh, he was um, embroiled in a number of sexual scandals. And at the time, he was kind of temporarily defrocked, but eventually received, you know, he, he received his show back. He was able to engage back in the culture industry. And again, Jimmy Swaggart being a white American, right? And so here we see issues of race, but the ways in which figures, popular figures, uh, like athletes, like TV personalities, uh, experience life differently based on race even in instances where they have been, you know, publicly disgraced, 
right? And so race is always at play. Uh, and so I think one of the one of the more important things for young people to pull away from these texts is that is this issue of being uh, very conscious of the way that media images circulate the function, you know, to question the function of these images. And this again is where this issue of knowledge of self comes back into, into play, uh, particularly in, in the sense of, of hip hop culture. And so when we think about knowledge of self in hip hop, uh, one of, you know, as I said earlier, knowledge of self is one of the pillars of hip hop culture. It's considered the fifth. Uh, and I, you know, this is kind of to, to play into the question about knowledge production. Uh, knowledge of self was really a reference to the lessons taught by, uh, I should say, taught to Elijah Muhammad, who in the American context was the leader of the Nation of Islam, lessons that he detailed in one of his texts. Uh, is one of the more popular texts read by a number of hip hop practitioners called Message to the Black Man in America. And so when we think about the history of hip hop, faith-based organizations like the Nation of Islam, like uh, the 5% Nation or otherwise known as the Nation of Gods and Earths, these were important organizations because they influenced the way that hip hop prioritized knowledge uh, and in particular, the value of history. And so in hip hop, the pursuit of knowledge of self emphasizes that young people should be well informed about not simply the past, but how uh, their ancestors have been implicated in the past, and particularly the histories or the hidden histories of marginalized people, um, marginalized people in colonial contexts and in, and in um, colonized context. And so being aware, of course, of these historical, uh, this historical phenomena and the ways in which it is intimately connected to contemporary forms of oppression. And so knowledge of self encourages young people to be committed to the practice of social change through both personal transformation and direct action in the form of attaining, consuming, and circulating knowledge, right? And so that's one of the ways that they can engage politically in the worlds that they inhabit. Francesca, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, for people that might be wary about bringing in sources that they aren't familiar with, like hip hop texts, I think one of these, like, I really like the way you ended on that because one of the things that I think would be so great is just to ask your students like bring in some music and let's let's learn about it together like you teach me about what you're learning from this and like you know if you don't know who Russian is for example like you can just google search it but to really kind of co-create that learning in the classroom so I just want to thank you so much for how valuable and interesting this has been and I think that it's going to be really uh, important for people to be able to think about like how do I want to bring this type of music into the classroom as a key source of learning, um, learning from and learning with. So thank you so much. Well thank you for having me and also I, one of the things that I appreciate about our conversation is just the ways that I think it allows teachers then to to kind of take the pressure off of themselves to understand that learning as you said is a dialogue that it is yeah. okay to come to the classroom and not necessarily truly understand a text like hip-hop culture but to understand as well that young people 
have the information as well. So instead of feeling that you have to know everything, which I think is one of the reasons why a lot of educators are afraid to bring texts like hip hop into the classroom, why not rely on the knowledge of your students and, and engage in a conversation and be open to the fact that teaching is as much about your own learning as it is about you know passing down knowledge as well that that is what's so wonderful about the the pedagogical exercise so thank you for having me and just for allowing us to have this uh, really important conversation because i think it will help a, a lot of educators take the pressure off of their own shoulders and make education something that young people can feel genuinely a part of well and i hope that it introduces i mean people may have already known that hip-hop is a great way to there there are elements in hip-hop that people can learn from but they might not know where to get started and i think you um, brought in such really great things to kind of start that learning so the link to these lyrics as well as the music video are below and any other thing francesca that you can think that a teacher might be interested in we'll also put those links below um, so thank you again thank you all right see you later bye take care bye